So good to see you, man. Yes, we are in the winter of this year, whatever year it happens to be. Mm, yeah, whatever year this is. But yeah, we're in the winter of our fish content. <laughs> see what I did there? Uh-huh. Ah, and how was how was your winter in in Ketchikan so far? We're a week from Christmas or that that strange holiday near the uh, equinox. <laughs> well, it's uh, approaching zero here, so it's finally feeling like Alaska. Oh. It's cold and clear, and snow is coming later in the week, so it's Alaska, man. Zero? You mean the same uh, latitude as Edinburgh and and uh, Northern Ireland? You're getting zero? Well, no, zero Fahrenheit degrees, Dave. Um, but That's freezing, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it is freezing. We're getting down to zero Fahrenheit. Oh, yeah. that's cold. That's cold. That's yeah. Arctic blast. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm saying. I, I was under the impression that the Pacific Ocean moderates the temperatures of the coastline on, on southeast Alaska. Well, uh, it usually does. Uh, typically here in Ketchikan, we are warmer than uh, places farther north, and Juneau gets uh, freezing weather much more than we do. But it's freezing here now, so i got to have uh, the heat, wow. uh, heat tape on and have a little trickle yeah. of water going. Heat tape on your pipes. Yes, sir. So is this unseasonably cold, or do you get this every few every years? Every few years, yeah. Okay, cool. In the mornings, I'm scraping frost off my truck here in Ojai, California, an hour and a half north of Los Angeles. So uh, that's pretty chilly for this this area. But then it'll heat up to 70 yeah, degrees during yeah, the day. Yeah, tough times, man. Tough times. Yeah. So <laughs> here we are. And you know what they say about people who talk about the weather? Uh, they're dull and boring, and that's all they could talk about. So here we are. That's right. They have nothing else to talk about. we got lots to talk about. Yeah, which is quite the opposite, because we have an amazing guest today. Oh, man. I am so... Well, he's right up your alley. I am so excited, Dave. It's just crazy. I'm, I, I'm a nervous Nelly. I'm just like, oh, he's, he's really... He's one of my lifelong art heroes well you know i have to be honest i didn't know of him until you suggested we interview this amazing man explain what his name is who he is and why you're a nervous now well jay maternus is his name and uh i'm actually you are familiar with his work because you've seen it over the years oh yes that is true but i didn't connect the dots. and that's kind of one of the problems is that people don't know about jay because he's yeah. remained kind of anonymous you have to look in the credits you know in the back of the time life books that as a kid, yeah. I had these Time Life books, and there were these murals, the the ages of mammals that just blew me away, and the detail in them, and just all the and the light in these paintings, and they're just full of creatures. And that was Jay's work, and I didn't really come to realize yeah. later, you know, in life that who that artist was, and began to recognize right. his work elsewhere in all these Time Life books, and then of course all the the fantastic Smithsonian murals. So, and what's great about his murals is uh, he'll paint an entire ecosystem. So. All the animals will be in the scene. Obviously, not you know in real life they would not all be in the same scene because they'd be eating each other. Yeah. But you go down and you can see the incredible details. There's so many. We'll, we'll yeah. Dive into so that. So many details just get lost. The uh, not only the fauna but the flora. So the entire ecosystem is there. Carefully researched it. He did his animal studies and. He's just an iconic guy uh, in terms of the art that he made and um, uh, just this this and a fantastic career that he's had. And I'm so excited yeah. that uh, our friend Kirk Johnson has gone to pick him up and brought him to his office. Well, I was just going to say that we have to give uh, pre very special thanks to Kirk because uh, how old is Jay? Jay is 89, approaching 90. 
So uh, right, and so Kirk actually has has driven to his house uh, on a Sunday, picked him up, and brought him back to his office at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural, the National Museum. How, how, what is it called again? Uh, we, <laughs> the I think we call this National Museum of Natural History. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, we're going to be interviewing both of them in the office, and hopefully Kirk will be able to chime in because he's always wonderful to listen. Yeah, this is just so cool, Dave. Uh, I, like I said, I'm nervous, but uh, <laughs> but I've met Jay a few times now. Kirk and I actually went over to his house, I think, in 2014 and uh, went down into uh, Jay's studio, which is in his basement. And just there's so much art there. It was It was just cool. blew me away. So. Well, we'll have as much as we can on his episode oh, yeah. at PaleoNerds on the Jay Maternus website page. It'll be pretty amazing. And I found something I want to ask him about, which is quite unlike anything he's drawn. Okay. So, An outlier, huh? Yeah, it's a surprise. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. This is going to be so fun, man. Shall we call him up? Sure. Do it on the old rotary. Traditional style. <laughs> okay. Yeah, All right. Because he's almost 90 well, years old. I'll do it yeah. on the rotary. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Here we All go. Right. Hey, Dave, meet Jay Maternus, paleo artist, anatomist, muralist, and illustrator extraordinaire, and I'm proud to say one of my friends. So, Jay, it's really good to see you. Well, it's nice to be here and, and to be interviewed. Well, it's, a, it's an honor to meet you. And of course, uh, in the other room is Kirk Johnson, who is, it's not right. just the three of us, Ray. It's, there's oh, a fourth. Right. There's an interloper. <laughs> <laughs> also known as Jay Maternus's chauffeur. <laughs> oh, that's right. Thank you. Thank you for picking him up on this Sunday morning. Jay, are you a paleo nerd? I'm not sure I understand what a paleo nerd is. A definition, please? Well, well I, I think have, you, let's have Dr. Johnson. Yeah, you, you, you came up with this it. phrase. Yeah, you came up with it. Kurt. Okay, so Jay, Ray and I traveled around the American West meeting people, and, and mm -hmm. we slowly came to realize that every once in a while, you'd bump into somebody who had a, a very strong interest in fossils. And we started calling these people paleo nerds, and we found they were often one or two per town, so we called them isolated paleo nerds or isolated paleo nerd syndrome <laughs> or IPNS. Yes. Both, both Ray and I suffer from IPNS, isolated paleo nerd syndrome. And yes. Dave Strassman's kind of curious if you too might be an isolated paleo nerd. I would guess you could say that I am, but I'm mostly uh, in terms of finished fossils rather than field work. I've never done any any mm. field collecting of fossils. Well, I guess the definition really would be those people that are passionate about uh, prehistoric things and or dinosaurs oh, and that yes. kind of thing. Well, in that sense, yes. I would guess that would be universal, actually. Okay. Yeah, it, well, you and, are. You are a paleo nerd, Jay. Okay, we, we've right, established okay. that. <laughs> Thanks for the definition. Well, Jay, I want to. I just want to start out that you know, like I said, it's such an honor to, to have you here. And I grew up uh, looking at a lot of your artwork over over the many years. You and I share kind of uh, similar origin stories. I'm an Air Force brat, and you're an Army brat. That's right. And yes. we've actually been kind of in some of the pl same places in the world. But uh, what? What's your origin story? Uh, you were born in the Philippines. Yes, I was. My dad was a uh, an army surgeon, and so we were stationed in a number of different places in, in the world, including in Panama at the time that Pearl Harbor was attacked. Hmm. I've lived all over, spent the war years in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 
And then, of course, after that, we were stationed at Fort Lewis, Washington. You yes. were also, you're one of those kids, like in high school and early on in elementary school, you were always drawing animals, right? And in, in high That's school, correct. you were yes. drawing creatures. Where did that passion come Yeah, where did that passion come from? Well, I'm not sure. I never really questioned where it might have come from. It just seemed to be natural. What was the animal that you drew a lot when you were a kid? I, I drew elephants because I visited the tar pits at La Brea, and I loved mastodons and, and mammoths. Mm -hmm. What was your favorite animal that you started drawing at an early age? Well, I've had a natural proclivity for primates, and I've often wondered whether or not it it was a result of the fact that in, in the Philippines, uh, my father had two monkeys uh, <laughs> as pets. Really? And uh, when I was a little toddler, I may have been exposed to this. And But most of my drawings, drawings that I was making from memory of, of the animals that I observed in the zoos, including a lot of details, you had a life-changing visit to the uh, uh, Museum of Natural History in 1946 and to the Bronx. That's Zoo, correct, right? yes. And yes. Uh, I know that that really imprinted on you. And uh, so Kirk and I often joke about, uh, well, we often talked about our childhood mm -hmm. superpower. Uh, mm -hmm. Mine was drawing as well, and it sounds like drawing was your thing. So you were usually in a lot of your high school classes, and, and then uh, you were drawing animals instead of paying attention to your teachers. Instead of making <laughs> French declensions in study hall, I was doing animal drawings. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell us about that visit to New York City in 1946, because I, I know that uh, your friend Richard Milner has mentioned it, that it was very uh, life-changing, kind of helped set you on your course. Absolutely. Well, my father had, was at Columbia University at that time, uh, and he said to my mother, he said, why don't you send Jay up over the weekend, and we can view the uh, Bronx Zoo and the... American Museum of Natural History, which I did. And that's that's something I I just never forgot. It really did set the whole course of my life. Hmm. Because at that particular point, my father really hadn't taken it seriously. He thought, you know, the boy was simply amusing himself with animal drawings. He had in mind that I would follow him as a as an MD. Hmm. And uh, my dad was the same way. He wanted me to be a doctor. And I, I said, <laughs> no way am I doing an extra eight years of school. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't until I had met a uh, portrait artist in, in Philadelphia. My father asked him, he said, does this boy, my son, does he have enough talent to make it as, as an artist? Hmm. His conception of an honorable profession was either the law or medicine. Hmm. And that's what he had in mind for me. But he couldn't really conceive of somebody making a life work as an artist. So uh, uh, Justin Pardee, the portrait artist in question, said, yes, he has the talent, but that isn't the thing that causes one to succeed in, in this field or any other. It has to do with persistence and drive. Right. And that you must Take the uh, setbacks and uh, keep on trying. That's great advice. It was, yes. So you really had your drawing chops down. You really, uh, you enjoyed drawing and uh, painting, I presume, too, at that point? Yes, and... I was doing a painting as well, yes. But yet there was this bond with the animals, and uh, there was a, a neighbor lady also who was pivotal in your life. Yes, that was a uh, lady who taught 
French at a private girls' school in Pittsburgh, and she uh, and she saw some of my drawings, and she got the idea to take those drawings to the chief staff artist at the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh. And he, in turn, took those drawings and showed them to the director, Wallace Richards, wow. at, at that time. And uh, Wallace Richards was one of uh, Richard King Mellon Foundation men. And he took those drawings to the committee, and they offered me a full scholarship to uh, Carnegie Institute wow. of Technology, which is now <laughs> Carnegie Mellon University, with the idea that I would be working part-time during the uh, school year and full-time during the summer recesses, which is what I did. And it worked out very nicely for me. That's brilliant. What was your first assignment? I think it was uh, a series of paintings of the life cycle of raccoons, if <laughs> I can remember correctly, because the <laughs> emphasis was largely on local fauna. And uh, <laughs> in my spare time, I would go out to the Highland Park Zoo in, in Pittsburgh and continue my my sketching of animals as I had done for the Philadelphia uh, Zoo when we were living in Philadelphia. That was 1950. I also read, too, when you were at Carnegie Tech, Jay, there were, and you were working at the museum and you're studying, you were also started participating in animal dissections with local zoo animals or was... Not at that I... time. No, that was okay. done later at, when okay. I went to the, the Cleveland Museum of Natural right. History. And uh, I was working as, as their staff artist. And when the Cleveland Zoo would lose an animal or a bird that they wanted for the, uh, that the museum wanted for the collections, I would oftentimes accompany the uh, curator of collections to go out and skin the animal. Uh, this was at City Hospital in the uh, pathology labs. I would skin the animal and uh, grab as much information as I possibly could. The first animal we, we that I worked on was a, a female Indian antelope, a needle guy. Wow. And subsequently, and one that was a great joy to me was a huge male mandrill that had escaped from its cage in the Cleveland Zoo and was such a formidable animal That's that a primate. Uh, the, police, the, the, the police had to shoot it. Oh, dear. It was a beautiful, beautiful animal. Is, is that the primate with the big blue stripes oh, yes, on its nose? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. A uh, yeah. uh, red line right down the, the nasal area, a flared nostrils with, and, and a nice... Saffron yellow uh, goatee, and wow. his face is framed with uh, saffron yellow hair. It's a very striking animal. Did you take notes and, and do drawings as you pulled skin and muscle? Um, I made a drawing because we had, I mean, we were only working, we were working against time because the animal had to be skinned out quickly because the museum wanted not only his skeleton, but they wanted his pelt for a mount that was subsequently made, that requires that you not tarry. Yeah. <laughs> it has to be skinned out and, uh, and salted down, prepared for the taxidermy. And subsequently, it, it was mounted into a, a very nice mount in the, in the museum. And, and what does barbecued mandrill taste like? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> well, Jay, one of your quotes in research and getting ready for this interview is, you've said, in order to interpret the past, one has to have a working knowledge of the present. Pretty yes. simple, pretty straightforward. But I think that 
that experience of dissecting animals and having access to a zoo and then and a museum, that really, you're doing things that many, many paleo artists just only dream of. And you've, you, yes. you were able to have that working, literally deep knowledge of animals and mammals in particular, it seems like. Yes, mostly, mostly mammals, yes. But that's what gave you the ability to really reconstruct ancient animals because you had an understanding of their descendants or relatives, right? You can infer okay. from the skeleton of a an extinct animal what you know from your direct hands-on experience with extant animals. And I continue that practice when I came here to the Smithsonian to, while well, I was doing my mural work and, and others, when a zoo animal became available to me. The museum was very, very uh, accommodating. They allowed me to store the animal in the, in the freezer, in, in the specimen preparation lab, and then to uh, thaw it and to gross dissect it. The animal, when I had the, the leisure time to do it, and uh, that was, would not have been possible if I had not been working at a museum of natural history. Well, we happen to have a museum director uh, right here with us today and, and yes. uh, who's written a whole book about, that's maybe a nice segue to talking about the mural project at the Smithsonian. Doctor? You know, this is the thing. When I got to the museum, I, I encountered these beautiful giant murals that Jay had done between 1960 and 1974. Yes. And we were renovating the hall and we were taking the murals down. And these murals are some of my favorite murals of prehistory. They're incredible because you can view them from a distance and you hear this huge scene or you can get up really close and the detail is there right up until you put your nose against the painting. And it, it was traumatizing to me to have to remove the murals to make way for the new exhibit. So I, I, first of all, I made sure the murals were carefully rolled and archivally stored. Second, I cracked down Jay and found out Jay was living not too far from the museum and struck up a friendship with Jay. And then third, I said, you know, we should make these murals into a book because many of them have been published before, but in small format. And we wanted to publish them in a format that, that they would be really available. And I can remember when I, after I met Jay the first time, I took Ray out to visit him and we went into Jay's basement and found all the pencil drawings. It was mind blowing. Wow. It was mind blowing. But you digitized <laughs> them, right? Didn't you digitize them prior to removal from the museum? Well, the murals yeah. themselves, yeah. Yeah, the, the murals themselves. We had, a, we had big cameras on tracks and did a really high resolution digitization, but the discovery of this trove of pencil drawings in Jay's basement, I was like, this has got to be a book because these murals are amazing. But but the each individual drawing, and there were hundreds of these drawings, of studies of animals or parts of animals or groups of animals, mind-boggling. Ray was there. He was blown off his feet. I, I yeah, I I remember that day very clearly. It took a photo, a few photos along the way, but uh, it was such a thrill to go to your house and meet you, Jay, and then to go down into the basement. And I really first became aware of you like through the Time Life books, and these were featuring. Oh, yes. <laughs> Me too. Uh, North yep. America. North America. Okay, I still have the copy that uh -huh. my mother got for our family, and then it was followed up by Early Man, yeah, the Time Life and books. One on South America as well. And yeah. South America. And mm -hmm. the murals of uh, the ages of mammals, uh, those were the Smithsonian murals. And mm -hmm. I was putting all this together and then realizing you were kind of anonymous in a way because your name was not really associated with these magnificent murals. And I have to look in the back <laughs> to find out who you were and yes. 
to finally meet you and put the face to the art was uh, so thrilling. But how did those murals come to be uh, in the first place? It's about 1960 when you did your first mural. And yes. uh, you did them more or less in order, right? The big well, one. The then. first one was the Eocene, uh, simply because of the layout of the hall, the Miocene. And then the, uh, the Oligocene and the Pliocene murals were set in alcoves. The halls could be opened and the public flowing through, and I would still be at work behind a barricade on, on the murals itself. So you were working during opening museum hours? Oh, yes, yes. And, wow. and into but the hidden, night as but well. But hidden by a wall. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to keep me insulated from the public. It was interesting, though, you could monitor the comments, the offhand comments of many <laughs> members of the public. I remember in one occasion when I was doing the Oligocene mural, across the hall from that was a beautiful slab donated by the Shell Oil Company, I believe it was. It was called the Strawberry Slab, which showed the footprints of a, a fossil mammals of the Oligocene, footprints in the mud, which had solidified, of course, into stone. And uh, apparently there was a, a boy and a girl, uh, boyfriend and girlfriend situation, and they were standing in front of the, the that, and I could hear this. I couldn't see them. I could just hear them. Uh, she said, what is that? And he, uh, he explained to her that these were dinosaur prints. He, he concocted the most incredible uh, Line of BS, perhaps. Yeah. Yes, okay. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, there was a, a very neat caption right there that would have explained everything that, that uh, they needed to know about this. And I wondered to myself, you know, what are we doing here? What am I, what am I about? What, what's the value of something if people don't really read the labels and inform themselves of what they're looking at? Did you step out from behind the wall and say, you've got that all wrong, buddy? I was tempted to do that. Oh, no. see, now I would have done that. <laughs> Kirk, I think that your administration of the museums that I've visited that you've been part of, you've helped change that ancient way of display and a boring description into a more of an immersive and in-your-face experience. Well, certainly, there's been more of a focus on audience and how, how people might react to things and what they're interested in. But it, it is fascinating because people come into the museum off the streets with sometimes no knowledge at all about prehistory. And so they, you can't expect them to sort of take on board the entire history of the planet just from one stroll in the museum. And that's kind of the whole point of the museum is it's for everybody, whether you have a lot of knowledge and interest or whether you have none at all. And, and it sounds like that date was the guy was just scrambling to stay ahead of his girlfriend a little bit. There. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to ask you, you know, I've painted a few murals in my day, Jay. Uh, quite a few, as a matter of fact, yes. Not on the scale that you have. And just so the audience understands this, each of these murals, and there, there are six of them. How big? Roughly 12 by 20 feet tall. 20, uh, 20 feet 12, long? 12 feet tall and right. about 20 feet yes. long. That's massive. On average, yes. But they did vary in, in, in length. <laughs> yes. And each one took you about a year to paint. 
and that's not really even counting the prep time and all that. No, and you worked no. crazy long hours, and it's a physical task to get up on a ladder. Were yeah. these paintings, the canvas was adhered to the wall, right? So you're working yes, standing up. By a very skilled uh, craftsman here in, in the museum's preparation labs. He knew exactly how to mount those those canvases, which were, they were one-piece Belgian linen canvases. Wow. Uh, mounted to a plaster wall. And at that time, it was very difficult to find craftsmen who could make a an actual plaster wall because at that time, everything oh. was wallboard. Right. So... Uh, couldn't you just get an old sail from a square rigger? <laughs> no, 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 these were Belgian and the canvases. So they were glued to the wall. They were, yes, they were. Okay. Uh, he used a, a combination of um, Elmer's glue, white glue, and a retarder. And he mm. was able to mount those canvases in one afternoon. Wow. On the scale, he had a system of trees, vertical uh, supports to either side with notches. And he would put the adhesive first to the wall, then he would press all that with, with a smoothing brush, and then he would lower the next section and he'd go all the way down to the bottom. And the next day, the canvas would have developed air bubbles, which I was astonished and very much concerned about. He said, right. no matter. So he took a big hypodermic and with the glue, he re-injected it through the canvas and smoothed it down on the wall. So I had we had a perfect working surface. And then he followed that with uh, at least six coats of white acrylic gesso. And that was the... the and the process was you had done a small painting, right? Yes, a preparatory yes, painting. Yes. And that had to be approved by all the scientists, it did, right? Yes, yes. And what was that process like? Can you tell us, have any anecdotes there? Well, first of all, of course, I had to reconstruct all of the members of the... Uh, the fauna, right. Yes. And uh, I worked with uh, Louis Gason. He was the curator at that time. And we discussed together. We worked very closely with each other. I might say parenthetically that working with a curator is one of the fun parts of doing something <laughs> like this. I really enjoyed all of the people I worked with. It was a very, very wonderful experience. What was the not-so-fun part? <laughs> well, the actual doing of it. <laughs> right. That that becomes work. <laughs> Which leads me to ask you, when you walk in that very first day, and there you have a massive blank white canvas, yes. and you obviously, in your left hand, you have a the drawing of what you're going to do, the sketch or the rough Yes, drawing. my preliminary the sketch. Very, what's the yeah. very first thing that you draw? Do you do the background? Is it, uh, well, the very do you first sketch thing out do the animals? Is to make a grid. You snap a cord with charcoal oh. and you have a nice grid, which you have also on your preliminary sketch. And you use that to enlarge the design in charcoal. Ooh. Subsequently, you remove the grid, of course, and then you make changes on the on the wall as required, because a small sketch does not give you exactly the same proportions, the relationships within the mural as the actual large mural sure. itself. So uh, it was a matter of making the, that. So that there's change. a bit of improvisation as you paint. Yes, to some extent. And yes. this is with oils, correct? So you have... No, these of... were acrylics. Oh, so they uh, dry oil, straight away. Oil yeah. paint gives too much of a sheen. 
in a museum exhibition hall where you have no control over reflections of lights from other exhibits. So that was the whole reason. And I like very much to work with acrylics because it, they dry very quickly. Yeah, it's, I, I agree. Enjoy. That's why I like them too. Yeah, but but yes. you can paint over them if you want to change something. Oh yes, right? yeah, right. Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, they are more amenable to changes and overpainting than uh, oil. Oil would be which because, takes so long to dry. Well, not only that, but the thing is, if you get too much of a and a buildup of oil paint, you can develop cracks. Right. Particularly with changes in barometric pressure and humidity and right. such. What I find so stunning about the murals is not only the amount of detail, Jay, mm -hmm. and the careful research that's gone into depicting these animals as accurately as it can. They've become these icons, too, of like you were, were the first one to figure out some of these animals and to portray them. But there's an incredible sense of light and atmosphere in these paintings, and they're so detailed. There's like a time of day that you have captured and the atmosphere, it's hard to convey. Did you have, as an artist, a vision of uh, the time of day? We want to do an autumn thing or have a shift that you knew that these murals are all going to relate to each other. Yes, exactly. Talking about I, the atmospherics. I tried to keep the um, local weather conditions and um, the uh, light varied between all four of the murals in the Fossil Mammal Hall. Same is true of the two that I did in the Ice Age Hall. Yes, they would, they would all be consistent in terms of, of your eye level, your viewing level, but uh, they would be varied so that you would get a different sense of day and, and of lighting in the various murals. Well, one of my favorite, I guess this wasn't a mural, but when you mentioned atmosphere, you painted a, a lion's attacking a Cape Buffalo, and in the background is a storm roll cloud. Yes, a roll cloud, yes. And, and that's such a rare atmospheric phenomenon, uh, maybe not in the Midwest, uh, uh, you know, during the, the tornado season, but mm -hmm. um, what an interesting choice. I was looking for something that would be dramatic to reflect the drama in the foreground. Uh, that roll cloud, of course, would bring a fast-moving uh, weather front that would have brought intense rainfall. That particular scene would have been a mud flat in just a few minutes after the action that I was depicting. But I wanted to say one thing about the, the murals. Yeah. With all of the animals that I had to depict, I could not show a literal visitor's level eye level. Right. I had to assume that the eye level was very high so that all of these animals could be included and depicted close enough to the viewer to give significant uh, sense of, of, of the animal. So as though you were 20 feet in the air? No, um, just that you were fairly small and looking upward at, at, the, oh. at the mural. And oh. that particular thing had to be carried through to all four of those murals. That's really incredible. And the sheer scale of it and... and uh... It's fascinating, all the little details in it. And I remember, too, when uh, I was lucky enough to visit your house and your studio, you did these murals over like a 15-year process. And you're yeah. like 27 years old, I think, when you this first started. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so this is a big part of your life. 
but these murals happen. And there was some politicking too to help get them at the end. And you mentioned something about Spiro Agnew. Is <laughs> do you remember Nixon's this story? vice president? Oh well. <laughs> yes, that I'm just going time traveling back, and I remember this little anecdote about, but I wasn't clear what it was. What was That's that? The late Jay? '60s, early '70s. '70s. Well, this happened uh, without my knowledge. I learned about it later, but. Uh, one of the people uh, who was director of exhibits at that time uh, apparently had proposed that the murals be photographed and produced as the preliminary sketch made into a, a photo mural and saving on the expenditure. Of oh, I see. Didn't need that muralist. And as a matter of fact, several people, uh, as I say, unknown to me, had gone up to the hill and had solicited both Teddy Kennedy in the Senate and Spiro Agnew. Huh. And apparently some- Bipartisan. Yes, some of it uh, <laughs> came down to the administration. I never knew all of the details. This, as I say, I learned about it only much later. And uh, apparently uh, permission was given for the final mural. It was the Alaskan mural that was in question. Yeah, I think that's what I remember, because that's what I saw in your basement that day was the mm -hmm. uh, the painting, the study for that. Yes. I thought it was a poster at first. You had painted it in such detail, but like, oh, my God, that's the uh, famous Alaska well, mammoth step painting. That's brilliant <laughs> that politics actually was in favor of art. Paleo <laughs> art, no does. Yeah, paleo art. But, but one of the things, too, that you did with these murals is you made trips to the locations where the murals were set, yes. if that was relevant. You right. traveled to Alaska oh, and yes. you traveled to Idaho. Dale, Dale Guthrie. You Dale knew Guthrie. Guthrie quite well. And then Bill Berry, too. Yes, Bill Berry was... Sorry, who is Dale was, and Bill? Dale Guthrie was, at that time, uh, a professor at the uh, University of Alaska. And he was the one who took me out onto the tundra to make studies for the uh, eventual mural. We carried a camera and we had a rifle and uh, a lot of mosquito repellent because those mosquitoes were, they are phenomenal, yeah. I must say. Clouds. Of <laughs> yes. At the time that we were there, the caribou were migrating. And at that time, they're also shedding. So their large patches of their skin are exposed to these horrendous mosquito attacks. But fortunately for the caribou, uh, snow patches, which may be uh, present, because this was during the, the spring and summer, they can stand on a snow patch, and for some reason or other, mosquitoes didn't swarm at them uh, on that patch. That's interesting. And then Bill Berry uh, was a, an artist up at Fairbanks, too, that uh, is a wonderful artist. And Bill Berry's work is just phenomenal. Uh, he's one of the, the greatest animal artists extant. He's one of my all-time favorites. And he worked for Disney, and uh, I see a lot of similarities in the way he he drew uh -huh. animals and and you. But uh, he was a field naturalist. Yes, he he went out into the field and he would make studies of these animals in the field from observation through binoculars or just through close up. Sometimes one of his favorite animals was the moose, and no one has ever done has never done moose with greater sympathy than Bill Berry. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I have a question. I don't know if you can see behind me. There's a beautiful mural uh, 
that Ray painted. Uh, it's called Sabretooth nice. Everything. Uh-huh. And um, uh, <laughs> crazy. He, yeah, he painted a giant Sabretooth salmon, and he has great shame because he painted the tusks uh-huh. slightly incorrect. And they found through later yes. discovery in fossils that the tusks actually are almost uh, horizontal yes. rather than yes. down. Is there any portion of your murals that were pointed out at a later date where they went, eh, we don't think it looks like that? Obviously, you were limited in, in what fossils uh, well, and discoveries at the time. But is there anything that was pointed out later on? Yes, there was a, a gentleman who was here at the Smithsonian for a short time. And then he, I think he went on to Harvard. Uh, his name was uh, Hickey, Dwayne Hickey. And he took exception to my interpretation of the terrain of the Miocene mural, the early Miocene. Uh, he said that there would have been less grasses, fewer grasses, or less expanses of, of grasses, and more shrubs, together with uh, copses of trees, than I had shown. I think that was a, a legitimate criticism. If I had a chance to do it over again, I would would make those changes and a lot of things that that I would have changed. For example, I pointed out that the grasses in the Miocene mural, which is uh, lower Miocene, lacked inflorescence. (laughs) I would attend to that now in a way I was not really particularly aware of at the time that I painted it. These are also discoveries that you would not have known about. Yeah, this is the thing. Leo Hickey was um, actually my PhD advisor, and and the Mm -hmm. field of paleobotany was kind of in a rough spot in the 60s, and a lot more information started coming out in the 70s. So Leo was able to look at these murals and go, yeah, we know that that's not the scene because we have these new fossil sites, these new ways of interpreting the fossils themselves. So in a way, the... the, uh, the animals are more accurate than the plants in some of those murals, or not the plants themselves, but the landscapes. But you corresponded with a lot of paleobotanists and invertebrate paleontologists. Yes. I mean, that's right. that's what's so amazing to me is every one of those animals that's painted. There's a whole series of drawings of the skeleton and the muscled out animal and the mm-hmm. different postures, and and you seem to be obsessed with feet. Um, <laughs> many of the animals you can see the footprints. I'm wondering if that marked back to your love of footprints, but almost every one of your paintings, if you look, you can spot one upturned foot so you can actually see all the details of the feet of these animals. Well, the feet are extremely important in in revealing the lifestyle of the animal. And uh, two things that, that are quite diagnostic of any fossil are teeth and the structure of the feet. So I, I felt obliged to show the, the feet in all of the representations I made of them. You know, you ask about uh, other changes that I would have made. It was not so much to the murals as to a an illustration I did for National Geographic, a book uh, uh, of the animals of East Africa by Louis mm-hmm. Leakey. Mm-hmm. And one of the animals he wanted to have reconstructed was a very large suid uh, that he called Afrocurus. What is that? Well, it's it's a, a big, big pig. It's larger than the, uh, the giant forest hog of today. Mm. And it had formidable tusks that came out of the upper jaw. And I was making uh, preliminary sketches of the, the reconstruction of this animal, which were to be shown to Louis Leakey to get his approval before mm-hmm. it could be published. And he asked me 
to make the tusks running straight forward. And I knew it to be wrong. Mm. There's no way that that animal could have gotten food into its mouth with uh, large tusks projecting forward. But because Louis Leakey was such a formidable political person, and I would have run some interference with the um, top brass at National Geographic at that time, I made the concession, even though I knew it was wrong. And I've always regretted that. Mm. Because at an earlier time, when I was younger and more brash, I took uh, exception with uh, a criticism that was made by Remington Kellogg, who was a, a formidable scientist. He wanted me to show the, the large animal called Uintotherium in the Eocene mural. Right. It's oh, yeah. Giant, as, as giant way, Yes, as the way it was mounted in for the hall, had a beautiful skeleton, but it was mounted with, with the elbows sticking outward in the, in the same mode as many uh, Hermotriassic reptiles from mm. the Karoo. And uh, I, I took exception to it. I said, I know, uh, Dr. Kellogg, that that animal was large enough, it would have required him to place his legs straight, not bent elbow. He wasn't doing push-ups. He, he conceded the point. He said, Maternus, he said, it would have been far easier for you to make that reconstruction as it's shown than for us to remount that skeleton. <laughs> so I, as I say, I, I won the point at that time. That's good. But not the, the time with Lewis Leakey. And I've always regretted that business with Lewis Leakey, particularly since that is something that was published and there are hundreds of images of that. I would just as soon tear that page out of the book. But that's sacrificing uh, your integrity as an artist, isn't it? Yes. Well, as a yeah. scientist, actually, scientist, really, yeah. too, you know, because yeah. you're a scientist as well, really, in your reconstructions. And you go through, through this very methodical process that few paleo artists or artists do in reconstructing the past, especially you start with the bones, number one, the structure of the mm -hmm. bones. You yes. know your how the bones fit together. Then you lay the muscles over them because uh -huh. of your knowledge of dissection. And then you add the skin and then you add or the covering, the fur or whatever. And then the coloration based on existing and animals ecology, and, your yes, own, exactly. and your own research. Yes. But once once you've gone through that process, Jay, there's got to be kind of a magical moment in that. And I've tried to describe this because I do a little bit of this, nowhere near what you do. But when you have a new fossil or an animal that's never been depicted before, you are the first one, really, because of your work, you're able to see this animal for mm -hmm. the first time, like in all the world. You know what I'm saying? You've done the careful research. There's got to be a passion and a drive and just a curiosity to bring these animals back to life that you must be driven by. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, once I arrive at a an actual covering of the animal, and mm -hmm. uh, I'm working with my curator all the time, getting his opinion and even other curators as well, from other institutions in some cases. Then I start to make freehand drawings of the animal in various positions and attitudes. In other words, I move him around in space so that I'm, I know what that animal is like, how he would dispose himself, how he would sit down, how he would climb, all kinds of ideas. 
And once again, I run these past my curator. A great example is the Jane Goodall's chimpanzee in the rain dance frenzy. You have these chimpanzees in all these different positions and, yes. and movements. And, and it's a, a great illustration of exactly what you're talking about, which we'll have on your page at Paleo Nerds. Um, but I do mm -hmm. have a question regarding anatomy. I mm -hmm. found a, a drawing you did on your website, which is j-maternus.com. You painted a Roman soldier from Herculaneum, which, as we know, is the sister city to Pompeii mm -hmm. that was destroyed yes. by Vesuvius in 79 AD. This drawing seems to be a test work in progress, as the soldier's head was first depicted as a bare skull, then fleshed out with muscle, then a recognizable face. But what is striking in this sketch is that he had what looked like a healed compound fracture in his femur. Yes, so exactly. what is the story behind the drawing of this Herculaneum soldier with the broken upper leg bone? <laughs> Painful. Well, yes, it's interesting because that particular illustration, I was uh, working with uh, Sarah Beisel, who had been doing the reconstructions uh, at uh, Herculano. She had provided this particular bit of information, but apparently there was a mix-up in the femurs. There was a left femur that showed a compound fracture that had, had healed with a, a bit of callus, making a rather large lump spur. in the... It's, it's a big spur in it. Yes. But that somehow got... And I did the illustration on that basis, but subsequently it was discovered that I had been shown the wrong femur. Oh. So I had to redo the position of the legs from a finished illustration in the proper position. Is there a story behind this skeleton? Uh, yes, it was interpreted as a soldier as a result of the uh, artifacts that were found with him, the sword and the general physique of the man showed sure. that he was a, a fairly substantial chap. Well, we'll have that picture on the website. It's it's quite striking. I'm sorry, the yeah, drawing. We'll have the drawing on the website. Such right. a wide uh, span of your work, Jay. But kind of back to some of the paleo obsession of bringing creatures back to life. You spent about 11 years working on Artipithecus. Yes. And you had to do that in secrecy, basically, for 11 long years. Exactly, right. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Artipithecus? Because it was a huge, this is before Australopithecus, and maybe what, yes. why Artipithecus is so significant. Well, Australopithecus is the Lucy discovery that Leakey right. did, That's right? right? Yes. Yeah. I went to Kent State University to deal with um, Owen Lovejoy, the curator. He was one of the three people that I was using uh, as my uh, consultants. Um, what I did while I was at Kent State University was to make detailed drawings of each of the elements that I was to reconstruct, including all of the existing bones of the hands and feet. It was an associated fossil. This is one of the things that is rare in doing a fossil reconstruction where you have a, a, an individual which is represented by all of its elements. Well, there were missing elements in this one. For example, we did not have a humerus of the upper arm bone on this particular animal. So I spent a lot of time making uh, inferences from the published literature about the relative length of the arm of an animal that was partially arboreal and, well, we ha happen to know it was also terrestrial which is most unusual in, among primates. How old is already in the hominin I think line? It's, I think the, the interpretation was about 4.5 million. So they use tools? Oh, no. 
no. at this time there's no or there's no evidence for it right right <laughs> we don't I, I believe tool use goes to about 3.1 million or something something like that, like that. You're close, Dave, but recent discoveries in Kenya show that the oldest stone tools date back to an astounding 3.3 million years. And no, it wasn't some old rusty screwdriver, but rather they were fist-sized chunks of chipped rock with sharp edges shaped into tools that were probably used for cutting meat or cracking nuts. And who were these early tool makers? It may have been Australopithecus afarensis, but it's also possible these tools were made by a completely different hominin species well outside the human genus. What we do know is that this was the first known manufacturer of stone tools in the world 3.3 million years ago. Pretty mind-blowing. Jay, weren't the, uh, wasn't the Denver Museum also part of your history? Yes, we were stationed at uh, Fitzsimmons General Hospital near Aurora. And one of the things I asked my parents to do is to take me to the Denver Museum of Natural History at that time. It's now the Denver Museum of... Nature and Science, yeah. Nature and Science, yes. Yeah. And uh, that was a, a big, big uh, turn on for me. And the wonderful dioramas, which are one of the features of that museum and a, a very large paleo collection as well. Yeah, That was before the American Museum then? Oh, yes, yes. That, this was in the oh. 1930s. Okay. And, and you know a little bit about that museum, don't you, Kirk? Well, I spent 22 <laughs> years there, so we, we share a love for those dioramas. Uh, yeah, exactly. and I've walked the halls of your collection room uh, with Ray. <laughs> well, maybe before I ask the, the one question I always ask is, Kirk, did you want to jump in with thoughts or questions? Jay's um, range of subject matter is goes far beyond paleo art. He's done a lot of historical paintings and and nature paintings and things. And, you know, we go to his house, and there's these amazing images come out. But I'm, I'm kind of curious, Jay, what what has driven you? Like, what's what's your passion? Or do you uh, meet scientists and they they try and lure you into painting their particular thing? Or how do you, how do you, you know, what's been the thing that really is most interesting to you in terms of painting anything of any age? Well, Kirk, it's whatever I'm working on at the time become completely immersed in the subject. I can't really say I have any favorites. Paleontology is, is probably the most interesting and most challenging at the same time, which is one of the reasons why this book that I'm working on with Richard Milner right now has been rather difficult because it's the lifespan of my work has been in a number of different fields. And a publisher wants to have you... Mm -hmm. Featured as a particular in a what particular field. You? Yes. Yeah. And I'm I'm all over the ship, really, with subject <laughs> matter and involvement with it. So uh, it's and that was one of the big challenges that Richard faced as as an author was to give some coherence to my life's work, which I had never really bothered with <laughs> before this book became a minute. I think that's one of the things that, you know, Matt Carano and I did this book called Visions of Lost Worlds, The Paleo mm -hmm. Art of Jay Maternus. And we just focused on the six mammal murals and the four reptile paintings that Jay did. So really 10 paintings, but there's just a whole story there. But this this new book, the whole, the complete oeuvre of Jay Maternus, it's a... Uh, it's such a broad topic. We really hope that book makes it into publication. 
I sure do too, because, and, and like uh, Jay, I guess I, I suffer from the same um, thing, well, suffer or delight, and I've, I've been able to follow my interests and my passions, and they're kind of all over the board, but uh, yes. we live a rich life, and uh, you, we get to draw and paint <laughs> images, and uh, mine is certainly very different than yours, Jay. Whoa. And Ray, you are an astonishingly... Uh... I'm not fishing for compliments, although I like the pun, <laughs> no, but, uh, but thank you uh, for... <laughs> But following your passions, you've had an incredible life. Mm -hmm. uh, you had, a, uh, you know, interactions with Louis Leakey, some of yes. these giants uh, in the field with uh, Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey in particular. Yes. Mm -hmm. And right. I sure hope that that book uh, comes into being because all of your work really does need to see the light of day. We ask this of all our guests and Jay, if you could time travel, and assuming that that's possible, what epic epoch, what favorite paleo period, what awesome age would you want to go back to and actually see? I would say a transition between the Paleocene and the Eocene. Why is that? Well, for one thing, the uh, you have this transmigration of animals from Asia replacing those which were native mammalian forms here in North America. And many of them are <laughs> extremely bizarre, very difficult to envision in terms of their, mm -hmm. their life patterns. That's the thing that, that would have fascinated me most, too, the fact that Wyoming at that time was like Florida. It was uh, neotropical. You get uh, such things as uh, fan palms, sabal palms in, in mm -hmm. Wyoming. <laughs> well, I've got to say that uh, having your paintings of these periods, too, allows us to actually get a glimpse of those worlds, you know. And so it's interesting to hear you say that's the one you'd like to see. Yeah, that's the thing that fired my imagination most. But then, of course, during the, uh, the Miocene, you get all these, these changes occurring as well in particular lines. For example, the, a progression of, of uh, forms. In the same line, and the same is true of horses and of rhinos and camels. Yeah. Uh, that's very fascinating. Alticamelus, for example, was proportioned much more like a, a giraffe yeah. for purposes of feeding on low hanging vegetation than you wouldn't guess it to be a camel. And that's one of the reasons that I showed it in the Miocene mural with a reticulated pattern on the back, very much like a modern giraffe. Wow, okay. As a matter of fact, it's interesting because the giraffe, when you have it out in the open, you can see it quite well. But uh, on one of my safaris in East Africa, my driver pointed out a giraffe to me, and I couldn't see them. They were <laughs> in a copse of trees really? standing under with the dappled pattern, and, you know, when you encounter giraffes in the wild, at some distance, they will stand there and, and look at you. They're absolutely still. And I didn't see it until one of them, the tail switched. And all wow. of a sudden, I saw it. Wow. He could see it. He was an African, and he could see things that, that you and I would miss wow. entirely. Yeah, they have invisibility cloaks. <laughs> I was astonished to see how well camouflaged those giraffes were. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I'm going to ask my question. Uh, this has been a wonderful interview, and I'm honored to be part of this. As a distinguished and talented artist whose legacy will live forever in many museums, 
I'm humbled by the beauty and detail of your paintings, murals, drawings. But to those young artists, scientists, and researchers who are just starting out in their careers, what wisdom or advice can you share that you wished you'd have known when you first started your career? Well, for somebody starting out his career today, the thing to do is to get into the electronics. It's a digital age, and things are produced today and in a digital form. I don't know that much about it. I have not gotten into digital art at all. It's alien to my approach. And I know that many illustrators who use uh, digital methods to produce their final result, uh, they make freehand sketches first. It's still, they still draw first. Start with a pencil. Yeah. Yes, because ideas are generated from a, from a moving pencil, right. whatever medium you're using. But that would be the, the way to get into it today with the digital uh, technology. Well, you use a digital pen, don't you, Ray, on some of your stuff? Kind of. I'm still a hybrid. Right. Still a, a pen and ink. Yeah, but uh, no, I, I think that there really is something, though, to the truth to the materials. That in other words, the materials that you're using really does, well, just dictates the look of the finished piece. So if you had done mm -hmm. those murals in oil, there would have been a different finished look to them. Yes. Um, yes. And I think so what you're working with kind of dictates it. But the, the digital world is scrambling all of that and because it can mimic all those styles uh, mm -hmm. you know digitally but uh yes. i still think the power of a tangible object the power of standing in front of your actual murals with your uh, brush strokes with the brush strokes and everything which mm -hmm. actually since we do have kirk here what is the future of those original murals if i can ask dr johnson yeah, no, we preserve those murals so they'll last for a hundred years. And, you know, sort of my goal that they assume an exhibit posture at some point in the future. I'm not sure when that is, but they're preserved in an archival manner. So they'll be around for hundreds of years. They're, they're really true treasures. And, and when we were taking them off the wall, there was a moment when we didn't realize they were on canvas. It looked like they were the wall itself. And that was actually... <laughs> yes trying to figure out how to saw them in part so I could put them back together again. And I was so delighted to realize they could actually just be peeled off the walls and served and roll in these giant rolls. But yes. they're in our archives and they're part of the Smithsonian's permanent collection and they'll reappear someday yes. in mm -hmm. some form. And they have been digitized at high resolution, right? And so there are, yes. yeah. there, are, there are two of them in the hall right now? Yeah, uh, digital yes, facsimiles right. of them. Digital mm -hmm. facsimiles at a super high resolution. Well, that's good to know. Jay, I am just overwhelmed uh, be, being able to, you know, spend some more time with you here. I really appreciate you taking the time and having Dr. Wow. Johnson it's come pick you up in Fairfax, Virginia, and drive you <laughs> to Washington, D.C., our <laughs> nation's capital. And thank you so much for joining us. It, it's always a fun time talking to you, and I, I learn a lot every time I talk to you. So thank you so much. Well, it's my pleasure, really. It was, it was quite an adventure for me. I've never done a, a podcast before. Well, it's been an honor, Jay, and uh, your work is just phenomenal. And well, thank you, David. Inspired me <laughs> to uh, study anthropology as a uh, high school student from the Time Life book. Oh. Yeah, thanks for including the chauffeur. <laughs> <laughs> we'll send you $5 for gas. <laughs> what a great day. What a great Sunday afternoon. Thank you so much, you guys. Well, yeah, thank, you. Right. thank you. Thank you.
Bye bye. Great fun. Well, <laughs> amazing. I, well, I had never really known of his work until you brought up Let's Interview Jay. And then when you sent me all the stuff, which will be on his webpage on Paleo Nerds, it is absolutely mind blowing. And it also is so familiar because of something that I saw as a kid in the Time Life book. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I was tracking his work for all those years, not knowing who this was and then realizing all these he's jumping around different subjects, but basically just bringing prehistoric life back to life, you know? What's your favorite? I kind of have an idea. Mm, you know, I would say the Great Plains Grassland Miocene Mural. There is the Amibelodon. It's this beautiful scene. The that... Amibelodon, that's the uh, the big shovel-toast elephant. Yeah, just the light in it and all. You're getting all lost right. in the crease. But then also the, uh, you know, the Mammoth Step painting, too. And way, yeah. way, way in the back... There's little humans in there, only if you look real close. Really? Oh, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, it's out. in the upper left-hand corner. Oh, by the way, there's okay. humans have shown up, and they're very tiny, oh. and they're attacking a giant ground sloth. I'm going to look into Which that. may or may not have been in Alaska, but that's another story. <laughs> so, Let me tell you my favorite. My earliest memories on my first plane flight was from L.A. to Tucson, where we would visit my grandparents who lived in Tucson. And part of visiting the grandparents for the holiday was going and driving through the Sonoran Desert mm -hmm. and the Saguaro National Monument, and then going to the uh, Sonoran Desert Museum, uh -huh. which is world-class. Oh, yep. And the Sonoran Desert Museum, all the animals were nocturnal, so you saw them under black light, and, and you, there was these nighttime halls mm -hmm. where you could see these animals. I think they were over time they reversed their cyclical daylight to nighttime right so that we could see them active during the day but the animals thought it was night does that make sense so they had a nighttime kind of uh, display in there right yeah exactly okay. which which represented moonlight yes so it's magical it's magical so one of his paintings is my favorite of them all really it's called Nighttime in the Sonora Desert. Oh. It's a nocturnal panel of a day and night depiction of Sonora Desert ecology hmm. on National Geographic. And it is just all the animals that I remember seeing at, at this museum uh, as a kid. So, But one thing about his work is you can spend a lot of time just jumping into his paintings. And, oh, I didn't notice that. Look behind the tree and... Oh, that animal's jumping in the air. There's so much, it's, it's just so much detail. It's it's yeah. crazy, and he's researched yeah. it all. And he's you know he's worked with the authorities, the people, the curators who know yeah. all about it. Does his research, but he himself, you know, as we heard in the interview, is like he knows his science, and he had some. He was asked to do something wrong, and he knew it was wrong. And, yeah, you know, yeah, and that really tortured. One thing him. we didn't discuss was that in doing the research for Jay. Someone said that it's really a shame. You only see the finished version of the animal he draws or paints because what he does is the skeleton first, then he puts the muscle on, yep. and then he puts the fur on, and then he actually animates it in a living pose. Mm -hmm. And all we're seeing is we're not seeing the process. We're seeing the final representation. And it's a shame that we're missing. Well, that's why that you should transition. check out the books, you know, that are about uh, the one that uh, Kirk. Tell me about this book that you're, you're trying to get funding for again. What's it called? Kirk and Matt Carano did one called Visions of Lost Worlds, the Paleo Art right. of Jay Maternus. But there right. is another book that uh, Jay has been working with, uh, basically with Richard Milner is his name. Uh -huh. And they have been doing a 
a broad survey working together. Uh, they become right. great friends, and it's basically all of Jay's work. So what can our listeners do to support the final publication of this book? Well, I guess... Love paleontology. Just love, love paleontology, and if you know somebody, <laughs> in a, you know, uh, I think uh, things are happening. We're, you know, and this show right. is maybe okay. going to help make okay. that book happen. And if our listeners all say, hey, we want to see that book, maybe it'll happen. Yeah, great. So, Fantastic. All so, right. yeah. So good will come from our podcast, hopefully. Well, some good, I hope, yes, yes. Some good. Yes. All right, Ray. Well, I'm signing off from uh, winter in Ojai, California, where uh, it's blue sky and beautiful, but uh, I'm freezing because I had to turn off my heater oh, don't for go. this podcast. Oh. Otherwise, the noise oh, would have yeah. come oh, over the microphone. so sad, you in Southern California. But I see some sunlight in your world, which is very I rare. I know. You have I'm sunlight? I'm getting all squinty-eyed here looking out there. But, and, uh, and where are you? You're in, in Ketchikan, uh, Miami, Florida? No, I'm in Ketchikan, Alaska, where it's uh, currently like 17 degrees. Right. It's cold out, right. but uh, anyways, from uh, beautiful, sunny, and very, very authentically cold Alaska, <laughs> saying so long, Dave. It's been another fun episode, man. Yes, Ray. Can't wait for the next one. See ya. Bye. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs>